Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Spring Retreat. Our speaker in this podcast is Ayan Hersey Alley, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is The Challenge of Dawah, Political Islam as Ideology and Movement and How to Counter It. It was recorded on April 23, 2017. Tom, thank you very, very much. I have to tell you, I'm incredibly thrilled, along with Neil Ferguson, my husband, to be here tonight. We love it here. We've been welcomed uh, to the Hoover community, and we've become not only fellows, but perhaps even family. We are on the way to becoming family. My talk tonight is an extension, really, of what I have been talking about for at least a decade and a half now. And um, there's a little booklet that I published with Hoover. It's called Dawa, the Challenge of Dawa. And the way that booklet came about was, it was right after the election, and Michael Flynn, who was then, uh, um, he was going to be the National Security Advisor, asked for some advice. And he said, could you turn this into a white paper? And I thought, if I could only convince him one thing, I know he's a very busy man, any national security advisor is a, uh, is a very busy man. If there's only one thing that I could tell him that could help him in the next four years or the next eight years, what would that be? And why? And this four-letter word, dawa, D-A-W-A, came to mind. Michael Flynn and his successor now, McMaster, and others before in the United States of America were struggling to understand, and we continue to struggle to understand, what happened on 9-11-2001 and afterwards. And what we've done in the last, at least in the last 15 years, is to focus on the violence what I would describe as the jihadi aspects of radical Islam. We've used almost exclusively military means or law enforcement means. We have spent almost no time trying to understand what the ideas are. What is it that animates these people to join organizations and movements like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Boko Haram, or Al-Shabaab in Somalia, where I come from, and all the others. What is it that animates them? We know because they tell us over and over again that they are moved by their religion, Islam. But we also know that one-fifth of humanity is Muslim. So instinctively, our leaders do the right thing. We have not declared war on all Muslims, and we should not. But we should be able to distinguish between those Muslims who wish us harm and those who don't. And how do we do that? If we focus only on the violence, the terrorist attacks, the lone wolves, and that language of law enforcement and military, I do not think we will ever be able to distinguish 
make a distinction between those Muslims who wish us harm and those who don't. This morning, our Homeland Secretary, John Kelly, was on television. He was asked about this question, what is the threat to the United States? And he said, homegrown terrorists were probably the biggest threat to the US. But he also said, I don't get it. I don't know how to detect them, and I don't know how to stop them. And listening to him, I was reminded of Major General Michael Nagata in 2014 when ISIS came up. And General Nagata did the same thing. He was in Iraq, and he came to the conclusion, we can take this outfit out. We can reclaim the territories that they have taken, but we do not understand the idea. And unless we defeat the idea, we'll always be confronted with this particular one, ISIS, or others. So where do we begin? I think that if General Nagata and Secretary Kelly and all of our leaders would simply pause and take the time to understand what dawah means, this four-letter word, that we would get closer to a place where we can design policies in the long term. This is a long-term struggle in the long term where we can defeat them. So what is Dawa? In order to understand or even start somewhere where you can begin, I think I will take us to Islam because it has its roots in Islam. I assume, and maybe I shouldn't, but I do, that most of you know that in the religion, the history, and the civilization of Islam, religion and politics have never been separated. So if you hold that simple idea, there is no separation of religion from politics in Islam. Islam has a political component, it has a social component, and it has a religious component, and of course, many other components. If we want to get to the idea, you know, what is it that animates these people to do what they're doing, then we have to start focusing on the political component in the history of Islam. In making that distinction between Muslims, where there are 1.5 or 1.6 billion of them, I think of interest to us is to focus on those Muslims who, when they reflect on their faith and their tradition, amplify the political and the military. I have a label for those Muslims. I call them Medina Muslims. The reason why I do that is that they there's this enormous legacy from the time the Prophet Muhammad founded Islam in the seventh century until now. And they focus on the legacy in Medina. In Medina, Muhammad stopped preaching. He assembled a militia. 
He waged wars. He conquered. And when he died, at least the four caliphs or leaders that immediately followed him continued to conquer and continued to expand Islam by the sword. So the guys we are dealing with look back to that period and look to Muhammad in that period and they see that as the glory period of Islam. They want that back. And so when they teach Islam to their children, when they convert others to Islam, that is the period and that is the legacy that they propagate. So Islam is a religion, but it's also a political blueprint. Now there are other Muslims, multitudes, who are completely indifferent to politics. Maybe because of their circumstances, they're simply too poor. Or too, they, they've never studied the Quran, they don't care. I call those the Mecca Muslims because at times, when they're confronted with whatever is done in the name of their religion, they say, unto thee, thy religion, and unto me, my religion. That's a quote from the Prophet Muhammad, but that was in the period in Mecca. So for all those millions and millions and millions of Muslims who mean us no harm, who do not emphasize the politics in Islam, who are not engaged in jihad or Sharia law, all of the other things that we've come to fear, I think it's good to have that label of Mecca Muslims for them. And then fortunately, there is a third group. I call them the modifiers, and I think I do that because strict academics will say, do not use the term reform. To reform or the reformation in Christian history means that Martin Luther went back to the pure text of the Bible and he challenged the church. Now, if you do that in Islam, if you go back to the literal reading of the text, then you're not reforming Islam. <laughs> That's what Al-Qaeda does. That's what ISIS does. So when I talk about reforming and reformers and modifiers, I'm talking about Muslims who live in the present day and who, upon reflection, reject the legacy of Medina. They reject Islamic law. They reject jihad. They reject all the intolerance that is propagated in the name of that. So those are the three sets of Muslims that I can distinguish. And I see Islam not only as a religion, but as a political component. And I think we should focus on the political component because that's what we're up against. And in that sense, it is an ideology. It's a philosophy. It's a blueprint for how society should be managed, how society should be governed, and what one needs to do with the tool of government power. Now, here comes Dawah. Dawah, then, is the effort that the Medina Muslims undertake to persuade fast Muslims and the non-Muslims that that is the blueprint for all of society. And in order to persuade, the agents of da'wah make use of the word of mouth, print, audio, video, and the internet. And they adapt. Their message may be old. They may want us to go back to the seventh century in terms of our lifestyles, 
but they adapt very, very quickly to technology to make that happen. On the societal level, they target the individual, the family, the neighborhood, the school, the workplace, charities and civil associations, and of course, the government. So when you are a military general, or you lead Homeland Security and you're focused on the next plot, you miss all of that. You miss all these socialization channels that are used to persuade individuals and communities to the idea of Islamic law, of that blueprint, that political blueprint. Many of you have also heard of the term jihad or holy war. In reality, jihad is an extension of da'wah. When all the means of persuasion fail, then a da'i, a da'i is the individual who is engaged in the activity of da'wah, is allowed to use force when possible. And if his comrades use force, that's good. Now, what is the objective early on? The objective is to dominate four spaces in society. It's the moral space. That blueprint is to tell you what the difference is between right and wrong. And all other blueprints are inferior or wrong, misguided. So in a comparison between the American Constitution and the Islamic blueprint, Adai will tell you the American Constitution is wrong, it's inferior because it's man-made. And anything that's man-made is, of course, inferior to divine law. They tend to occupy the cultural space. The relationship between men and women and the way they mix together or don't mix together, they have all sorts of things to say about that. Young people are taught not to go to the movies, not to go to clubs, not to drink, to live in a certain way, according to that blueprint. Some of the arts, anything that has a face and eyes, that is banned. It's not allowed. Singing, dancing, music, all of that is made taboo. They also occupy the information and education space, all means to persuade people and to maintain that objective. That is da'wah in Muslim societies, but what about da'wah in non-Muslim societies? The objective of those pushing for da'wah in non-Muslim societies is to find Muslims and to persuade them to live in a parallel society according to Sharia or Islamic law as much as they possibly can. What a Medina Muslim who is engaged in da'wah activism will do is he will go to as many Muslims as he can and say, do not assimilate, do not integrate, do not associate with the infidels. 
Christians and Jews are friends to one another. They cannot be our friends. Your only contact, if you are to seek contact with them, is to invite them to Islam and to make them Muslim, and in other ways, please avoid them. And if you think this is a mad idea, which initially it does sound a bit mad, because you come from the Middle East or South Asia or North Africa to settle in Europe and in the United States and in other Western liberal societies, and here is a group of people telling you not to assimilate. That's mad. But a lot of people buy into that. And empirically speaking, if you go to Europe today, and it's beginning in the United States to have happened, you have all these enclaves where informally, what I call Sharia light is not only propagated, but it's implemented and it's manifest. The first thing you see is how young girls and women are treated, covered from head to toe. And I'm not talking about dietary issues. This, this is really a way of saying, I live here, but I obey other laws. Another objective that they have is to convert as many non-Muslims as possible and to penetrate and erode from within the institutions of society in order to advance that political blueprint. And in their methods in doing that, they've learned a lot from the Marxists. The march through the institutions. I think in a way they understand history much better than some of our professors of history do. They target vulnerable groups like African Americans. And even recently, I've read lots of manuals on Dawa, on how to penetrate, how to, how to convert Latino Americans, and how to convert Native Americans. Any group that they think is easy to penetrate because of a weak identity or a weak sense of history is easy prey. I want to conclude that what happens if you analyze and understand dawah is that through that process of dawah, the hearts and minds of legions, legions of people and communities are shaped by the Medina Muslims. Due to the large scale, the large scale, or the large number of people who adopt the tenets of political Islam, there is always a large supply of willing recruits ready to join the jihad and jihad-centered organizations and movements and maybe even act individually. Also, there is everywhere a large enough community or communities within which those who plot jihad, who plot terrorism and subversion can hide and thrive. So if our government officials and generals really want to defeat the idea, that blueprint of political Islam, and that agenda of what I call the Medina agenda, they will have to spend some time learning as much as they can about dawah. And unless we understand dawah 
and the sinews of da'wah and the infrastructure of da'wah, we will not defeat the idea. And it's not only some random network that is out there that is propagated by people who are disconnected from anything just harking back to that time. Da'wah is propagated also with resources from governments, the government of Saudi Arabia, the government of Kuwait, the government of Qatar, and other oil-wealthy countries. Each of them has a ministry or a department of waqf. Waqf, this is an endowment that is exclusively, the monies that th these governments allocate is for the spread of that blueprint of the idea of Islam. So if we really want to defeat this idea, we're going to have to review our relationship with some of these countries. We're going to have to understand the infrastructure, the schools, the mosques, the cultural centers that they come and set up here in other Western countries, and how that translates into making these communities that then engage in jihad or that are anti-assimilationist, that erode or subvert our society from within. I'm going to leave the rest of the time to take your questions. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.